Good evening, everybody, and welcome to the uh, 2016 Hollywood Lecture. Um, my name's Virginia Kilborn, and I'm the president of the Astronomical Society of Australia, and I'm really, really pleased to be here tonight uh, with so many people who've come out here to, to listen to the Astronomy Lecture. Um, standing up next to me, I have um, Professor John O'Byrne, who's from the University of Sydney and is Secretary of the Society and has also um, played a big part in, in organising tonight. Uh, tonight's talk is um, jointly organised by the Astronomical Society of Australia and partnered with the University of Sydney, um, Sydney Ideas Group. So thank you very much for that partnership and for helping to organise it. Um, I'd just like to mention that this year marks the 50th anniversary of the Astronomical Society of Australia and we've having, been having a very special meeting this week, um, which we, have, we do have a uh, scientific meeting every year, but this year has been particularly special, um, marking the history of the Society and also thinking about where we're going to go in the next 50 years, so it has been really uh, fantastic. Uh, so let me tell you a little bit about tonight. Um, we're going to have um, Dr Luke Barnes, who's going to give the main presentation uh, for tonight. And this will be followed by um, a response by uh, Professor Mark Colvin. And uh, I would ask you to hold questions until after you've heard both of the talks. And then um, the speakers will sit down the front and we'll have microphones roaming um, in the room for you to be able to um, ask questions of, of the speakers. Uh, and the talk is being recorded tonight, and so we would um, ask you to wait until that moment to ask your questions with the microphone so we can get the questions on, on recording as well. Uh, let me tell you a little bit about um, the, the lecture tonight and the two speakers. Um, you've got the um, details in your program here. But the Harleywood Lecture is a very special event for the Astronomical Society of Australia because it um, commemorates the first president of the society, who was Dr Harleywood. Um, he was a, um, the government astronomer at Sydney um, Observatory for over 30 years. And he was very uh, involved in the popularisation of astronomy and making astronomy available to everyone. Um, a little bit about our speakers. So Dr Luke Barnes um, is a postdoctoral researcher here at um, Sydney at the Sydney Institute for Astronomy. He obtained his PhD from University of Cambridge and works on the uh, field of galaxy formation and fine-tuning the universe for life. Uh, and he has a book coming out, uh, co-written with Geraint Lewis, A Fortunate Universe, Life in a Finely Tuned Cosmos, and... Um, Highly recommend that everybody goes out and buys it once it's available for, for, <laughs> for purchase. <laughs> um, the respondent is Professor Mark Colliven, who's a professor of philosophy um, here at the University of Sydney, and he'll offer some comments um, uh, after the presentation as well. Uh, if you're um, on Twitter and so inclined, we uh, do have some Twitter hashtags which have been coming up uh, on the front here and hopefully if you're um, our Twitternado you've already noticed that and started tweeting uh, about the talks and uh, I think that's all from me so without further ado I'd like to welcome uh, Dr Luke Barnes up to the stage thank you very much all right well thank you for that uh, and thank you for everyone for coming out. A uh, special thank you to uh, John and Christoph, the local organisers, 
uh, of the ASA meeting here for choosing me for this uh, great honour. Uh, it's wonderful to see such a great crowd. Uh, thank you for coming out, for braving the night air in these troubled political times. Um, <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> yeah. Um, so I was chosen to do the Hollywood lecture earlier on this year. Uh, I actually grew up in a small town halfway to Brisbane called Maxville, and I was talking to uh, a lady there who's known me since I was quite small, and she said, um, sorry, we're not on? We're not on? I'm just loud enough? Is that what's going on? Okay. <laughs> oh, I'm on there. Okay, we're good. Okay. I'll still be shouting, but I'll now be amplified. Perfect. Uh, uh, so, uh, a friend, she said, uh, what are you doing these days, Luke? And I said, oh, I'm an astronomer. And she said, oh, I worked at the Sydney Observatory. My boss was Harley Wood. And I said, um, if anyone knows it, Verley Lee. Um, I said, oh, what was he like? I'm giving the Harley Wood lecture. What, what was he like? She said, he was really good at table tennis. <laughs> Which does, does make you wonder how you're going to be remembered. Um, the, the, the poet... Uh, uh, Hilaire Belloc wrote his own epitaph in which he said, uh, when I am gone, may it be said, his sins were scarlet, but his books were red. Uh, so that's a... <laughs> um, I should say, she lent me a copy of uh, a, uh, a very good biography of Hollywood, which I recommend to you, uh, in which it says that the two most enjoyable experiences of high school for Harley were mathematics and cricket. Uh, I certainly have that in common with Hollywood. Uh, but he was an observer. Uh, under his leadership, the Sydney Observatory, together with the Melbourne Observatory, completed the astrographic survey of the southern sky. And by the time that was finished, there were 53 volumes ca uh, cataloguing the positions of 940,000 stars in the southern sky. Uh, it took decades to, of, of uh, very intense work, obviously. These are the days of photographic plates. There's no d digital detectors. There's no computers running them through. This is all done by hand. An extraordinary amount of work. Obviously, a painstaking uh, process. But that's the sort of things that, that uh, ob observers do. But one of the funny things about astronomers is that we, we do get together and talk about careers in astronomy. But I've never heard anyone get up and really try to rev up the crowd that they really want to be an astronomer. It just doesn't happen. Why do you want to be an astronomer? Of course you want to be an astronomer. It doesn't even get raised. We focus on more practical questions like, how on earth do I get paid for being an astronomer? <laughs> and if anyone has any ideas, please let me know. Um, so why is it that... So there's something about astronomy, something about the night sky that sucks people in to this career and to nights like this and to the... Uh, six or seven different amateur astronomy societies in Sydney alone, which I've been touring in the last couple of weeks. Um, and it's not that hard to work out. There is something about the night sky that has fascinated humans and continues to fascinate humans. It is simply beautiful. And one of the, one of the things about it, the sort of great works of art, great beautiful things, is that the harder you look at it, the more times you look at that painting or hear that symphony, the more beautiful it gets. And the bigger telescopes we build, the harder we look at the night sky, the more beautiful things that we see. We have the next generation of telescopes coming up that are being uh, talked about at the meeting that's been on here. We don't know exactly what they'll see, that's part of the excitement, but they will see more of the beauty of the universe. One of the great things about being an astronomer, in fact, 
is that at any point I can just throw up a slide like this. Or this, or that. I can do this all day. Those are planetary nebulae. What's going on there is that a star is burning, uh, it usually burns hydrogen. You take two hydrogen uh, nuclei, which is just single protons, you whack them together, and if you do that enough times, you make helium. Uh, once you run out of hydrogen, once the stars run out of hydrogen, it will uh, need to either, do, it'll need to do something else, right? It's the, that pressure that's holding the star up against gravity trying to collapse it. But if it's big enough and hot enough, it will be able to whack helium nuclei together and ignite the star again in that way. But there is a bit of a transition period when it's trying to get that happening. And that's what you're seeing here, the different ways in which stars change their fuel source. Even something as small and mundane as that creates such extraordinary patterns on the night sky. That is the appeal to astronomy. I think that's a major thing which you never really lose as an astronomer. The, you've, you never get sick of the night sky. Well, I said Dr. Wood was an observer. I'm a theorist. No one lets me anywhere near the telescopes, and neither should they. Right? Um, what is it about the universe that brings us in? And the thing is that we see in the universe, when you're a theorist, a different kind of beauty, but one that is talked about in quite similar terms. So one of my favourite scientists from the last century, one of the greats, uh, Henri Poincaré said, the scientist does not study nature because it is useful to do so. He studies it because he takes pleasure in it. And he takes pleasure in it because it is beautiful. If nature were not beautiful, it would not be no worth knowing and life would not be worth living. He's French, he's effusive. Um, I mean the intimate beauty which comes from the harmonious order of its parts and which a pure intelligence can grasp. So in a letter between Albert Einstein, to Albert Einstein from Werner Heisenberg, another great of the 20th century, he said that these interrelationships display in all their mathematical abstraction an incredible degree of simplicity is a gift we can only accept humbly. Not even Plato could have believed them to be so beautiful. You, Einstein, must have felt this too, the almost frightening simplicity and wholeness of the relationships which nature suddenly spreads out before us and for which none of us was in the least prepared. So that's what sucks in a theorist. That underneath it all, there's the beauty of the night sky arranged so wonderfully, but underneath it all there is this fantastic simplicity that the kind of mathematical elegance that mathematicians have been studying, we go and find that out in the, in the real world. It's so simple that the, the basic elements of the universe, I can put them all up on a single slide, thusly. This is called the standard model of all the complicated things you see around you. They all boil down to one slide's worth of particles. Now, you may be familiar with some of these. The Higgs boson's been getting a lot of press lately. It's got a very good PR team. Uh, <laughs> the photon is just light. And then up here we have the quarks. We have the electron and its bigger brothers and an elusive particles called the neutrinos. Those are the basic bits. And that's it, we can put them all on a slide. And the equation that they obey, I could put that on a slide too, but you've all been nice enough to come out here, so I won't. <laughs> okay? This is the basic underlying stuff from which we can build a whole heap of things. Actually, the most important ones for us here are going to be the up quark, the down quark, and the electron. So, what can we build out of them? Well, if you take 
up quarks and down quarks together, you can make protons and neutrons. And if you put protons and neutrons together, you can make the nuclei of atoms, and then electrons will go around the outside. And there's a lot of different ways that you can do that. The different number of protons that you can put in at the center gives you all the different atoms of the periodic table. Once you've got atoms, once you've got electrons going around the atoms, those electrons can interact with each other in ways that bind together nuclei, bind together atoms. So a water molecule is hold, held together by the fact that the electron is not just orbiting the hydrogen, it actually goes on a sort of complicated path around the whole thing so that they can't pull away from each other. That's a quite a simple example. With a bit more time and effort, you can make this. That is DNA. So hydrogen, oxygen, nitrogen, carbon and phosphorus together uh, can literally code life. You can write a human being in one of those. But that's just, again, chemical bonds, chemical things reacting together. And with these and some proteins, you can make cells. Uh, you can uh, consult your nearest biologist for the extraordinary complexity inside a cell. Every cell has its own, for example, postal system. If it wants to get a particular molecule from one side to another, it will quite literally load it onto a truck, put an, uh, an address on it, send that truck down a highway where the address will be checked, and if it's the right address, it will be unloaded and sent off to be used in another part of the cell. Molecules do all of that. And if you put enough cells together, you can make munchkins. Here's some I prepared earlier. <laughs> so the short story is, with some assembly required, these are the basic stuff of our universe. And there are simple laws which describe these basic pieces. We don't exactly know all the details about how everything is joined together, but the basic pieces are quite simple. And when we look right at the bottom, there is one piece of this puzzle which kind of sticks out to the theorist as being a little bit out of place. There are certain numbers we need to describe those basic parts that we don't know how to calculate. We can measure them. We can go and do an experiment to measure them quite accurately, but we don't know how to calculate them. We don't know why they are what they are. For example, just the mass of an electron. How heavy is an electron? is something that despite all the efforts of scientists for the last, well, century really, no one's been able to sit down with a pad of paper and some algebra and come up with why the electron has the particular mass that it has. There are a set of numbers that describe the basic way that our universe works, and they're called the fundamental constants of nature. They are there in our equations, but we don't know why they have the values that they have. So, for example, those fundamental particles, that big table of particles, the masses of those. Those particles interact with each other via various forces. There are four forces that correspond to the four particles on the, the far, no, you're looking that way, right-hand side. The strength of those forces, how strongly they, these particles interact with each other. There are numbers that characterize those. We don't know why those are what they are. And the cosmos as a whole, there are certain numbers we use to describe that, how fast it is expanding, what its average density is. We don't know why those numbers are what they are. So in particular, the strength of the forces, you'll be familiar with you know, the strength of gravity, for example, and electromagnetism is another one, uh, how charged particles will repel each other or attract to each other. There's a number we can use to uh, characterize that. It's called the fine structure constant. 
and its value is about 1 divided by 137. That number 137 has fascinated physicists for quite some time. So Richard Feynman said once that all good theoretical physicists should put this number 137 up on their wall and worry about it. Immediately, you would like to know where this number for a coupling comes from. Nobody knows. It's one of the greatest damn mysteries of physics, a magic number that comes to us with no understanding. We don't know. So we can ask a rather innocent sounding, but eventually rather dangerous question. What if they were different? They seem to be just numbers. They're just there in the equation. When you're a theoretical physicist, you're presented with an equation, and they say, and your, your task is to say, if that's how the universe really was, what would follow from that? So we can take these equations, change those numbers, and see what happens. So let's do that. We're going to represent the different possibilities by this block. So here's what you do. If you pick a particular point in that block, it's three-dimensional, you've picked three numbers, effectively, and we'll let those uh, describe the mass of the electron, the mass of the down quark, and the mass of the up quark. You remember those were the bits that went into protons and neutrons. Okay? Um, it's going to be what's called a logarithmic scale. It's not a hard idea. Instead of going up 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, because we have so much ground to cover, we'll go up in factors of 10. So 1, 10, 100, 1,000 to squish more stuff in. The top of the block is cut off by something called the Planck mass. The best theories we have about the universe don't about, sorry, how uh, particles work in particular don't include gravity. But we can do a very rough calculation that says if a particle had a mass as big as the Planck mass, it would become its own black hole. Right? At which point our theories both, uh, our theories about how particles work and how gravities work just say, all right, I have no idea how to deal with that thing. So that's sort of the, the top of our ignorance. Sorry, the top of our knowledge. It's all ignorance from there up. All right? So, what we're going to do is, if this is the set of possibilities and you're particularly uh, adventurous tomorrow and you set out to create a universe and you want to make it a good one that can do interesting things, I'm going to help you out by carving off bits of the block that uh, won't really work for you, that'll be a bit boring, that won't do that sequence of steps to make interesting things like people who can give talks or munchkins who can eat ice cream. So. Let me start by carving off that section. If you pick the value of in these regions here, the problem is that now there's, only, there's not two types of things, protons and neutrons, that you can make out of quarks. There's only one type of thing. And the problem is that that thing will not stick to anything else. Right? For those playing along at home, on this side it's called the delta plus plus, and on that side it's called the delta minus particle. Right? You can all memorise that for the quiz later on. Come in. Uh, so, what that means is that entire periodic table, which involved sticking together protons to make bigger things, right? all of that disappears in these bits. The entire periodic table in a step is wiped out. So, for example, over this side, the only thing you can make has the chemistry of helium. Now, some of you remember your high school chemistry. For those of you who don't, there is no chemistry of helium. It does nothing. It's a noble gas. There are literally no compounds that it makes. There are no reactions it undergoes. That's it. So in those universes, it's totally boring. 
The only particles you can make will not stick to each other, and so the entire history of the universe consists of things bouncing off each other, and that's a lot. You don't bind anything, you don't make solids or liquids or DNA or anything like that. Um, uh, I made this, so I'm going to show it. Let me just spin that around for you. That was about half an hour's work, so I'm going to throw it in. It's not particularly, <laughs> particularly enlightening, but it turned out all right. Okay. Um, we're going to carve off a few more bits. There are other parts of the universe here where you have protons and neutrons, great, but they won't stick to each other. So that's no good. And there are other parts of the universe where, uh, of this sort of set of possibilities, sorry, where you make a nucleus, great, you put an electron in orbit around the nucleus, great, the nucleus eats the electron. Not so great. No chemistry, no atoms. Actually, everything dissolves into a pile of neutrons. So that's not a particularly great universe either. We can go even further and say, well, we're messing with nuclear processes. So, I mean, stars depend on all of those. So let's cut off the bits where there are no stable stars. That cuts off the bottom. And then we can take a slice out of the side which says, if you're over there, the first burning process in stars, instead of giving out energy to help hold the star up against gravity, sucks in energy. Those of you who remember your chemistry, it's endothermic instead of exothermic. It, it sucks in energy. That's no good, right? The star is trying to fight the collapse of gravity, and if whenever a nuclear reaction fires up, it eats away some of the energy it has, that thermal pressure it has, the thermal energy, then the stars will not light up. They will keep on collapsing, probably into black holes. So those aren't particularly good either. And finally, stars in our universe have the rather special ability that they can uh, burn and create both carbon and oxygen. This relies on a very special property of the carbon nucleus, it turns out. It has what's called a resonance. There's a way to make it jiggle in a certain way that won't fall apart. That special form of stability gives, gives stars in our universe the ability to make carbon and oxygen and further on. Okay? If you want your universe to have that ability, then you're going to need to land it in that section there. So that is our final bit of parameter space we're going to need to hit. That's a little zoomed in section just showing you how thin it is. Uh, let me just pop a razor blade there to bash you over the head with an obvious visual metaphor. Uh, if you need another one, there's a tightrope walker. Um, this is called the fine-tuning of the universe for life. We didn't really know what would happen. I mean, we, we have our point somewhere in there where, where our familiar universe is. We sort of focused all our energies on that, trying to work out where we are. And then as we step down into parameter space, who knows, maybe there's all sorts of interesting chemistry and, and other forms of life out there that in the other ways the universe could have been. It's not the way it turned out. Okay? We can do a similar sort of thing with the forces of nature. So the fine structure constant I mentioned before, it's how electrically, electromagnetically, things interact with each other. And the strong force is what glues a proton to a neutron and proton to proton, neutron to neutron, to hold nuclei together. So as we change, oh, there's us there. This is sort of, these numbers represent the strengths of the forces. Uh, it's a bit of a cheat. I've squished in from zero to infinity on one plot via a bit of mathematical magic there. You can work that out yourself. Um, 
There's us. And some interesting things happen elsewhere in parameter space. If you're in this yellow section, carbon and anything bigger than carbon is unstable. The strong force isn't strong enough to, to hold it together. So you've wiped out just most of the periodic table. Uh, carbon is element number six. And the first five, which I will not attempt to recite, because I don't you know, lithium, boron, beryllium. Yeah, not bad. Uh, chemistry was always a bit, yeah. Um, you can't do a lot with those. There's not a lot of chemistry you can do. For example, if you ask, uh, let's take hydrogen and one of those elements, how many different chemical compounds can I make? And for most of the, the rest of that first row of the periodic table, it's sort of maybe 10, probably around five. Uh, for carbon, it's 29,000. So carbon's quite a special thing. So if it's unstable and there's nothing interesting else to replace it, then we're in a bit of trouble. Um, up here, electrons orbiting around atoms are unstable. Uh, here, the proton itself is unstable. That's bad news. Um, down here is that one I mentioned before that uh, stars, uh, the first reaction absorbs energy rather than giving off energy. A particularly interesting one is this green region, which I quite like. Um, in our universe, if you do a chemical reaction, there's a typical amount of energy you'll get out of it. And if you fire up a nuclear reaction, there's a typical amount of energy you'll get out of that. And the, the ratio of those is about 100,000. Right? This is why you, alchemy doesn't work. Right? Light all the fires you want. That's a chemical reaction, right? Set all the wood on fire you like. Stir your cauldron any way you like. You will have you know, 100,000 times less energy than you need to start kicking things out of the nu nucleus of atoms which is how you actually change lead into gold, okay? But in this bit of the universe, if you're there, then now those energy scales are about the same. So if you leave your cake in the oven a bit too long, you <laughs> might make a lump of carbon, you might make a lump of lead. That's an interesting one. That's an interesting one because these other changes I've been talking about make the universe really simple, right? You wipe out the periodic table, you don't have to worry about any of that. Chemistry is really simple. The chemistry textbook just says nothing happens, right? In that one, now chemistry gets really complicated. You have to do chemi chemi chemistry and nuclear physics at the same time. So what life does over there, I don't have the slightest clue, okay? So that's the basic stuff of the universe. But we can expand our view out to um, the cosmos at large. So there are other numbers which describe the universe as a whole. And in particular, they, they, just, they govern how it expands and how things then behave inside that expansion. So, for example, uh, you can start a simulation, as I've been doing recently, of an expanding universe. You can put things in there. You have small lumps of matter here and there. And thanks to gravity, those small lumps will grow. They'll attract more matter from around them. And so structure will grow in the universe. And if you have a great big computer and a lot of time, then you can simulate a lot of the universe and really have a good look at this pro uh, process. So I'm about to show you a simulation by the Eagles collaboration. Uh, if you were attempting, I have the code on here, actually. If you were attempting to do it on this machine and you wanted it done by the end of this talk, you would have needed to start your simulation during the reign of Henry VIII. <laughs> but don't. Uh, don't do it in one computer for 500 years. Let 4,000 computers do it in a month and a half. 
okay? And keep your fingers crossed that nothing happens to the computer for that month and a half, okay? I, I once opened up my email to find a, an email from the uh, National Computing Infrastructure, which was describing the power cable that went to the computer, the supercomputer, and involved the word vaporized. <laughs> I don't know exactly what happened, but all of those simulations were gone. Anyway, here's one that worked. So uh, you start off with this fairly smooth distribution of matter, and then gravity starts to take over, and you can see things collapse into this filament-like structure. It's taking those small over-densities and making them bigger and bigger. And there's the simulation itself, when a, specific, when a bit of the universe is dense enough, will make stars, and then we'll blow those stars up to drive matter out back out into the universe. This, by the way, is the theorist's revenge. So when the observers get up and show all their pretty pictures of galaxies and stuff, we have pretty movies. So, um, what we can do with this, what I've been doing with this, is changing the numbers that describe our universe. And in particular, there's one number called the cosmological constant. You may have heard that the expansion of our universe is accelerating. The universe is not only getting bigger, but the rate at which it's getting bigger is itself getting bigger. We think that this is due to a form of uh, matter, form of energy, more specifically called, uh, which, which uh, is called dark energy, Think of it as we're completely in the dark energy. Obviously, you don't name something that unless you have no idea what it is. But we know how much of it there is. Uh, it, it behaves in the same way as something called Einstein's cosmological constant. So what we can do is run this simulation again, although in a slightly smaller box, because it's me doing it. I don't have quite all the resources. Uh, and change that number and see what happens. So let me just show you. This is my own sort of box. It's not quite as, as uh, detailed as, as the other one. Okay. So that was sort of what you saw before. I show that to you because I'm now going to compare it to one where the universe has 10 times, the one on the, this side, the universe has 10 times the cosmological constant. So at some point in the universe, this is history, that's going to take over and make the acceleration expand, uh, 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 the... Expansion accelerate, sorry. Uh, and everything's going to get away from each, everything else really quickly. And so, if you watch this bit, for example, you see everything's still sort of combining here, but around about now, because uh, everything's moving away from each other so fast, everything over here sort of grinds to a halt. Okay? So this is showing a piece of the universe. Really what should be happening is this whole cube is expanding at the same time, but uh, that would be really hard to see. So we've sort of factored that out. Um, we can do this again. Now this is 100 times, and what you can see is very quickly this movie grinds to a halt. While this one's still forming stars, uh, putting gas into galaxies, making all the stuff that life needs, this one does nothing. Okay, we can zoom in. Just because I made this movie and it's fun. So you'll see this guy here combine to make a bigger galaxy. Uh, this guy here gets dragged away by the cosmological constant and just can't quite make it in. And if we go 100 times bigger, suddenly the one on the right-hand side doesn't do very much at all. So this is 
This is what the cosmological constant does. Now, we have a certain value of that number in our universe, but the same sort of theories that uh, describe how particles work can, describe, can sort of predict a rough value for this, this constant, or at least a sort of range of values. And it turns out that relative to that range, the set of values that will let you actually create any structure in the universe is remarkably small. So, for example, um, in these wedges we have data. So these are actual observations of galaxies out in the universe. So this is uh, 2DF GRS, the two-degree field uh, galaxy redshift survey down in Australia. And we see that sort of uh, filamentary pattern uh, that we see in simulations. The red ones are simulations. Unless your cosmological constant is in a quite a small range, and really a ridiculously small range, all of this gets erased. So as things worked up, that, that part time when the cosmological constant just moved everything away from everything else too fast for any more structure to form, at, at some point, that ends up too early in the universe, so early that nothing has formed. And so you get a universe totally devoid of any structure whatsoever. So that's another example of the fine-tuning of the universe for life. That there is a sort of range of possibilities that we see as theorists when we look in the, the equations, which are doing a wonderful job of describing the universe, but we see other possibilities in there, and those are pretty bad news for life all around. So at this point, giving a fairly shameless plug, there's the book. Uh, we've reached sort of the end of chapter six of the book, although there's a lot more detail in there. And we spend most of chapter seven uh, just responding to various sort of questions, re reactions that people have to the sort of uh, 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 things I've been talking about, the fine-tuning of the universe for life. And then we get to chapter eight, the last chapter of the book, where we ask the question, what now? So this is a rather odd fact about sort of theoretical physics, that these theories that are doing such a great job of describing how the universe works, yeah, cheers, uh, seem to set out a whole heap of other possibilities about how the universe could have been. And amongst that set of possibilities, our universe looks kind of special, if you want to use that word. At least unique. There are a lot of other possibilities that wouldn't do anything like the sort of interesting things that happens in our universe. So the first thing I want to sort of say in, in response to what now, what are we supposed to do with this fact? The first thing I want to say is that we should do something. So let me start with an analogy. So suppose that you arrive at a crime scene and, uh, yep, some of you recognise this. Hey, very good. The rest of you need to go and watch The Naked Gun. Um, so Frank says, uh, so here's the crime scene. So a, a bank has been robbed. And the CCTV footage shows that the robbers went up to the, the vault and punched in the 12-digit code the first time, opened the door, and ransacked the place. How did they do it? And Frank says, maybe they just guessed the code. <laughs> what exactly is wrong with that theory? Right? It's kind of obvious, okay? But pulling it apart, we say that the problem with that theory is, 
if that were true, what you would expect to happen is that the robbers walk up to the keypad and go, one, 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 one. Nope. One, 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 two. Nope. Let's just go home. Right? If they guessed the code, they wouldn't get in the first time. The problem with that theory is that it gives an almost certainly in, uh, you know, wrong prediction. Whereas, if you have a different theory, like it was an inside job, now it makes sense. Surely, if it was an inside job, they would come up with the code memorized or on a piece of paper, they walk up, they put it in the first time, and in they go. So that's the way that we test an idea in, in physics. Part of, a crucial part of testing in physics is the calculation of a probability. So we say, let's assume that the theory is true. And let's calculate the probability of what we saw. The probability in this case that they would get into the safe on the first attempt. The problem with Frank's theory is that that chance seems to be like, you know, it's a 12-digit code. It's probably like one in a trillion, right? 10 to the power of 12. You do the maths yourself, right? That's the problem. Whereas, if you take the other, the other theory that it's an inside job, now suddenly the probability that they would get into the safe on the first attempt is nothing like one in a trillion. It's you know, one or a half. or it's, it's not that bad. So what we want to do, what fine-tuning suggests that we do, is we take some idea about how the universe works and we say, all right, what's the probability that a universe which obeys our theory about how the universe works would contain life forms? And what fine-tuning seems to suggest to us is if your theory is there's one universe and it, it just sort of got its properties somehow at random, if you want to say it like that, then the fact that you and I are sitting here, the fact that our universe contains life, seems like an extraordinarily unlikely fact. So we should maybe go looking for a different theory about how the universe got there. One thing I want to say in principle is that that kind of calculation is exactly the same as all the other calculations we do in physics. So, for example, if you have some theory about cosmology, you could ask whether the universe would contain galaxies or atoms or magnetic fields or a certain blip on my detector or continents that fit together like a jigsaw puzzle. This is the basics of theory testing, right? It's just treating life as something we know about this universe. It's a complicated thing, but it's treated as a physical thing. It's something that we can approach in this way. So, what's an alternative idea? Let me discuss two of them. If we are suspicious of the idea that there's just one universe and that it got its properties by random, maybe we should think about other universes. So this is an idea called the multiverse, which has uh, found its way into comic books for some reason. The Infinite Crisis, fight for the multiverse. Why Batman is involved, I have no idea. But this idea of a multiverse is quite simple, right? Why, do, why does anyone win the lottery? Why does someone win the lottery? Well, there's lots of people buy lots of different tickets. So that's roughly the idea here. It's very unlikely that any particular universe will hit on the, the life-permitting uh, subset, but if there's enough of them, then maybe one of them will hit the jackpot. Now, there's a couple of things you might want to say about that. Firstly is, is there any reason to believe that from physics? Now, we have some theories of the early universe, inflationary theories, for example, which might predict some sort of multiverse. But you do end up 
asking the question as a theorist of, of what do we think we're doing? What other universes? I mean, really, we're supposed to be doing science here. And at this point, you start thinking about, okay, is this really science? And you might, <laughs> once you've asked that question, you're doing philosophy. So I'm quite happy that Mark's here to sort all this out for us. Not really. Uh, What, one of the things I want to say is that actually we can approach this theory sort of scientifically with something called Boltzmann brains. This is a slightly strange idea due to an Austrian physicist from the end of uh, the uh, 19th century called Ludwig Boltzmann. So here's a quick quiz. Is that Ludwig Boltzmann or is that a hipster I photographed today on the streets of Darlington? <laughs> that, that could very easily be on Instagram. Boltzmann had an idea. Why is the universe... So, Boltzmann was the first to really think about the second law of thermodynamics, that the universe tends to be running down. So if you put a hot cup of coffee in a cold room and come back later on, you'll have a cold cup of coffee, right? What you'll never see, although it would it, uh, conserve energy, is all the thermal energy in the air of the room getting together to heat up the... spontaneously to heat up the cup of coffee. So processes in our universe seem to go in one way and not another, towards more disorder. Boltzmann was asking the question, okay, if the universe has been around forever, and if that's the way of things, why aren't we totally disordered right now? And he had an idea. Maybe the universe as a whole is totally disordered. But you can't observe that, right? If you had a totally uniform, chaotic universe, there'd be no one around to see it. So, if there's anyone observing anything, they must have found the occasional patch of spontaneously created order. It's very unlikely that it will form, but those are the only the bits of the universe we could see. There's a very early version of what's called the anthropic principle. Basically, if, if you're observing a part of the universe, then obviously that part of the universe permits the existence of observers. It's a selection effect. Okay? In the 1930s, a, a, a great physicist called Arthur Eddington found a problem with, with this idea that the universe as a whole is just in total equilibrium and we're just a random fluctuation in that. The problem is that, as an observer, I don't need all the rest of the order in this universe. Right? So I'm, uh, you know, there's, there's all sorts of order in our part of the universe, and it's, it's orderly as far as we can see. It's all galaxies and stars doing great stuff. It's not just total chaos just out, outside of this room. The problem is if we were waiting around for an observer in the midst of chaos, almost certainly that observer would see as much order as it takes to make that guy and no more, right? So, for example... Um, we could go back to the, the robbery case. If you were actually guessing the code, um, suppose that, for whatever reason, there were 12 digits, but you actually only need to get the first nine correct. It's, a, it's an odd code. If they guessed, you would expect them to get the first nine right and the last three wrong, just because it's overwhelmingly unlikely that they'll get more than they need, right? So the problem with Boltzmann's idea is that we seem to have more order around us than we need. And in fact, if you ask Boltzmann's theory, as you ask any good physical theory, what would you expect to see? The most likely thing you would see coming out of the order is what's called a Boltzmann brain. The universe will create just enough order to make a brain that would have some thoughts for a while and then just dissolve back into the chaos. 
Okay? Now, this sounds like a slightly insane idea. It sounds like uh, brains in a vat and the matrix and all of that. The reason why we take this idea seriously is not because we worry that we might actually be Boltzmann brains. It's the, the place we worry about Boltzmann brains is in our theories. If you have what you think is a lovely idea about how the universe works, you need to explore all of its consequences. You can't just cherry pick the nice bits. So in particular, if your universe, which you think is not lovely, on closer inspection, like Boltzmann's, turns out to be infested by Boltzmann brains, you've got a real problem. And the multiverse might have that problem too. If you need a set of really unlikely circumstances to get life, Sure, if you make enough possibilities, you'll eventually get a universe like this one, which is lovely and big and ordered and has the periodic table and all of that. But it might be the case that actually your, your theory makes a prediction that for every one of the universes that sees a lovely ordered universe, there will be oodles and oodles of Boltzmann brains. And then your theory has made a prediction which is wrong. To do that, we need to explore these theories, which is part of why I'm doing those simulations. Alternatively, we could ask, we could look beyond physics. So we're here essentially at the sort of bottom level of physics as we know it. We, this is the, the equation that we don't know anything deeper than this, and we found in that equation something weird that we think needs an explanation. And it might be the case that if we could write down on the blackboard the final equation of physics that describes everything, we would still have questions about that. And if you want to answer those questions, you better do something which is not physics. So there are people who have, have proposed all sorts of uh, ideas about this. There's a famous book by uh, John Leslie where he says maybe, uh, it's a slightly strange idea, that maybe moral, uh, moral values are creative. Maybe the reason why the universe is like this is because the good wants to make things that can you know, sit around and do good things. That sounds like a weird idea, but we're down below physics, so it's, <laughs> things are going to get weird down there. Now, we start off with a fairly, in, uh, fairly innocent question a while ago. What if we change these numbers of physics? And we've ended up with a whole heap of really weird scenarios, right? With brains coming out of nothing and you know, weird things underneath the physics. Uh, but thankfully, uh, I've got all the answers for you. They're on the next slide. All right, don't get your hopes up too much, but we, will, we do talk a lot more about that in, in, in Chapter 8. Uh, so I want to leave it there. Uh, this this, this uh, topic raises an awful lot of questions, very deep questions about the universe and how it works. And if we have questions about the fundamental way it works, what on earth do we do with those? And uh, let me actually finish with the words of uh, Harley Wood himself. I've been enjoying some of his books lately. Uh, he says, by studying astronomy, we may become more closely acquainted with the forces of nature, nature which nowhere else display their universality in so majestic a form. Thank you. Uh, thank you very much. That was an absolutely uh, fantastic uh, talk and certainly a view of the universe that I haven't uh, thought about for a very long time, or ever, actually. Yeah. <laughs> um, to respond, I'd like to invite um, Professor Mark Cullivan um, to take the stage. Thank you very much.
Thank you very much. And it's a real pleasure and honour to be here. So um, I'm just going to make a few comments. I haven't got very much to disagree with, with Luke. Uh, um, I'm just going to, as a philosopher, bring perhaps slightly different perspective on some of these things. You might think what, you know, it's an astronomy lecture, astronomy to topic, what's a philosopher got to contribute? So this is kind of what astronomers do. There's Harley himself. And somewhat uncharitable, but, you know, view of what philosophers do is something like this. <laughs> um, thanks to the great Michael Lunig. He doesn't call that a philosopher, but that's the view that some people have of philosophy. There is something true about that, though. I mean, there's a sense in which, you know, astronomers looking out onto the universe... Philosophers sort of look inward, want to know stuff about how we use our terms, how we, what do we mean by fine-tuning, what, what, how are we using our, uh, our pieces of our theory, what are probabilities. We tend to look sort of much more inward, but perhaps not quite that inward. Okay, so let me, so I'm just going to... Just sort of run through the argument, sort of, you know, sort of rewind and go through again, but with a sort of a philosopher's commentary on the, on the movie, if you like. So the first, first move um, in the fine-tuning argument is to sort of establish all of the fascinating instances of the fine-tuning itself. And, and Luke did a wonderful job of sort of laying out that little box and how small the pieces of the box where you're going to get interesting life um, or interesting universes at all. Um, but interesting question about how you get from the fine-tuning to the improbable. It's not straightforward as it turns out. So the evidence, I think, for fine-tuning is hard to deny. I mean, um, Luke has just run through that all very nicely. But the next step in the argument is that because life-permitting intervals are so small, so that little tiny part of the box that will get you uh, life, because that's so small, our universe is improbable. Um, the idea is the intervals in which constants, the constants in question, in fact, he presented as a three-dimensional space, but he was just focusing on three of the particular uh, values there. It's a, it's a what, you know, n-dimensional space. There are so many of these kind of instances of fine-tuning. You, In a way, you've got to get them all to line up. But that doesn't really change the, the basic structure of the argument. The three-dimensional picture will do just as nicely. The small little region of that three-dimensional box, it doesn't matter if it's an n-dimensional box for some large n, it's still it's on a tiny little region of that n-dimensional box. So the idea is the intervals which the constant in question needs to be located are small compared to all the values that they might have taken. It's like trying to hit a bullseye on a dartboard from 2.37 metres away, which I'm told is the legal distance for playing professional darts, and with a randomly directed dart. No talent here. It's like me playing darts, right? Uh, you just throw the dart and what's the chances of hitting the, dart, hitting the bullseye? The problem, in at least some of the, the instances of the fine-tuning, is that any interval is small compared to all the infinitely values that it could take. So here's our dartboard. This, this is another difference between philosophers and astronomers. You know, Luke gets to show nice pictures of you know, nebula. 
That, that's about as good as I can come up with, right? <laughs> so the idea that the dart hits the centre of the dartboard, uh, the bullseye, and you need some conditions in place to even say that that's improbable. So it's a randomly, uh, randomly thrown dart. Let's suppose that it had to hit the dartboard. Let's constrain the space. I, I'm not so hopeless that I wouldn't miss the board. So it's, it's probability one that it hits the dartboard, but it's complete open slather from there. Well, the probability of getting the bullseye is going to be the area of the bullseye compared to the area of the whole board, right? But the problem here is that we don't have a constraining space. If the values could genuinely take any value whatsoever, it's kind of like, what's the probability of hitting the bullseye given that the dart could have gone anywhere in the universe? Very low, <laughs> grant that, but the problem is it, you cannot get, uh, without some technical manoeuvres at least, a uh, sensible probability judgement out of that. And what you want is to say that the, this current universe, our universe, is improbable and that needs explanation. Uh, it's, it's not straightforward to get to there. But let's, let's push on. Let, let's, let's grant that. Let's suppose that there is some way of getting past this problem and you can get to an improbable universe. So the next step in the argument is to ask for an explanation for the improbability. So if my dart hits the bullseye, you'd like to know why that happened. Well, you've kind of got to be careful even here, though, right? Because if I just threw the dart and it hit anywhere... That's kind of improbable as well, right? Wow, it missed the bullseye by exactly four centimetres to the right. How improbable is that? Yeah, that's not doesn't seem problematic, but it's just as improbable. In fact, we can make a narrow little region around that spot, smaller than the bullseye, and make it even more improbable than the bullseye. So... Why do we think that the bullseye is important here? Because not all improbable events require explanations. There's lots of places it could hit on the dartboard, all of them improbable, but only some of them we think are improbable and require explanation. Um, there are exactly N words in my response to, to Luke's talk, for some sort of hopefully not too large N. We don't need an explanation for this. It's like had to say something. I couldn't have said zero words. That wouldn't be a response. I can't go on forever and ever. And there had to be some finite number n, which would be the number of words in my responses. Whatever that is, it'd be sort of perverse to say, wow, it was exactly so many words. He said exactly that. What are the chances of that? Must be an explanation for that. No. Um, just had to be some number or other. Um, we just don't think it's significant. Or, although, you might think, you know, you can make up scenarios where it would be significant. Let's suppose you've got a really dull life. You do nothing else than follow me around and listen to my talks and count the words in my talks. And you notice that it's a large prime number every time. You know, you think, wow, now that's something I need to explain. Here's a hypothesis. He's a compulsive, obsessive nerd. <laughs> You'd be pretty close to the money, but that's a, part of what you'd be doing there is you've kind of already got the explanation in mind, as it were, and the kind of phenomena sort of invites the explanation, whereas just any, any old number of words, you're inclined to say, no, I just don't need an explanation for that at all. Improbable things happen, 
sometimes that's just the way things are. Compare that with the dart case, as I said. The dart had to hit somewhere on the board. Anywhere it hit was going to be kind of improbable. There'll be a little region around wherever it hits, and you say, wow, what are the chances of that? Nothing special. What's so special about the bullseye is because that wins you a game. It's something that you're trying to do. So if you know, we're going out to dinner and I say to Luke, let's decide who's going to buy dinner. Let's just throw a dart at the board and whoever gets closest to the bullseye uh, gets dinner for free. Right? And I hit the bullseye. He'd be quite within his rights then to say, hang on, you're a, some sort of dart shark, right? <laughs> You've got talent here. You know how to do this, right? But because the bullseye was specified in advance as being significant. And that's important in these claims for explanation. So part of what's really going on here is that we think there's something special about the kind of universe we live in already, right? So Luke went through very nicely explaining how, how, uh, how fine-tuned you require it to be in order to get kids eating ice creams. But what if you didn't think that was anything special? Think, give me that universe with just all the, he all the helium kind of bouncing around and nothing else. I mean, that's a cool universe. What are the chances to get in that one, right? Um, we think that there's something special about carbon-based life. Um, so granting that life-supporting universe is improbable, why do we think it needs explanation? Well, life's rather salient to us, you know. Um, we tend to, we're all, we're all a bit of that sort of philosopher with the telescope, you know, <laughs> looking inwards, right? We tend to think, oh, we're special, we're alive, we need explanation for this. But again, um, this is not uncontestable, at least. So in versions of this argument, many of you would have seen these so-called intelligent design arguments, which run the course of the argument as Luke did, but hops off towards the end when you get to the multiverse and says, no, 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 the best explanation for why all the fine-tuning is someone's doing the fine-tuning. There's an intelligent designer here. But it doesn't help, right, unless you've got some insight into the mind of the fine-tuner. At this point, you've got to invoke some, I think, implausible assumptions about the designer liking living things, right? And think about how weird that is, right? You've got an argument for the existence of this thing, but in order to get that argument out, you already have to know that that thing likes, likes life. And there are various parodies that run through the sort of intelligent design um, versions of the argument where you sort of point out that lots of things are implausible, like a universe that has living organisms that were smart enough to develop chocolate that's even more fine-tuned, right? Because a lot of those fine, a lot of that stuff that Luke was sort of showing you were just going to get your life, but not things smart enough to get chocolate. So you know you could be living in a chocolateless universe. You know, figure that. So is that a proof that the fine-tuner likes chocolate? Right? We have a chocolate-loving deity. You can see the sort of problems. It depends on what you focus on. What do you think is significant? What is it that needs explaining? And carbon-based life is the usual candidate here. There are other things you could choose as your candidate, and you could even deny that there's anything special about carbon-based life. It's just us thinking that we're special again, and we're not. Um, 
It might be important for other reasons. We might think, yeah, we want to know why there's carbon-based life in the universe given that we're carbon, part of carbon-based life. But whether it's significant from the sort of broader uh, cosmological point of view, is that the sort of question that we should be asking? Um, is it really screaming out for explanation? Push on. So from explanation to the multiverse. So let's grant all of that so far, that we've got an improbable universe. It is improbable in the right sort of way, so we do need to explain it. Um, life in the universe is not so special if we had lots of shots at it, right? So that's the basic idea of the multiverse. Um, if you have lots of goes at punching the numbers into the, the, the vault, uh, or to stick with my example, you've thrown infinitely many darts at that dartboard, you're going to get that bullseye every now and again, right? And it's even better than that. This is what sort of one of the not cool things about the, the multiverse view, is that you've got all of those universes out there, the boring ones, the, the ones where everything collapses into black holes too quickly, where nothing changes. You've got the ones with life, the ones with life with chocolate. We've got all these different universes out there. But the only ones you're ever going to see, or anyone is ever going to see, are the ones with life in it, right? So it's kind of like the dartboard. No one sees your misses, right, in the, in the, in the uh, fine-tuning case. And with the dartboard, it's like infinitely many darts, but no one sees all your bad shots. You just call them into the room and say, look, bullseye, got it, <laughs> right? Go out of the room, another kind of flurry of darts, all of which miss and you then call them back in every time you get them. So this kind of selection effect that Luke was talking about is precisely the kind of thing that would uh, explain these kind of unlikely events like hitting a dartboard, uh, the bullseye of a dartboard, or ending up with the physical constants um, the way they need to be to promote life. Um, very similar to observations to do with um, organisms suited to their habitats. You know, in light of evolutionary theory, we know that you no know, mystery as to why organisms are well suited to their habitats, because there's been selection against those that weren't. We don't necessarily need to see them. It's kind of part of perhaps confirming the overall theory, but we expect to see things by and large well suited to their habitats because they'll be selected against if they're not. This is the kind of same kind of selection effect we're talking about here. So just to finish up, um, Luke questioned whether he was sort of stepping outside his brief as a scientist here. Have we overstepped the bounds when we start talking about these multiverses? Have we overstepped the bounds of science and now strained to speculative metaphysics where that's supposed to be a bad thing? But luckily, you have me with you and there's nothing bad about speculative metaphysics. Uh, you can't think of experiments to confirm the multiverse. Um, you can't observe it directly, but so what? I mean, a great deal of science goes beyond observation. It's a very kind of silly and old-fashioned view of science that is just that data, data, nothing but the data. I mean, the whole job of science is to take the data and do, do things like extrapolations and interpolations and general laws from the observed data that you have. Um, so this seems, to me at least, it, 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 uh, of the same kind. I see no special problem here. 
don't know if you've all heard the joke about the, um, supposed to highlight the difference between an astronomer and a philosopher. So the astronomer goes into the vice chancellor and says, look, you know, we need a new radio telescope. The vice chancellor goes, oh, you astronomers, you're always on the take, right? If it's not a radio telescope, it's a new optical telescope or it's, you know, gravitational wave detecting stuff. I mean, you're always on the take. Why can't you be like the mathematicians? They need pencil, paper and a waste paper basket. <laughs> or better still, the philosophers, they just need the pencil and the paper. <laughs> Again, slightly unfair, but only slightly. <laughs> so in my book, the boundary between philosophy and science is at best a fuzzy one. I really don't see a huge amount of difference. I mean, Luke was already talking about the differences between what he does as, as a theoretician and uh, uh, um, experimental physicist or uh, observational astronomer. Big differences there, too. The difference between a theoretician and what a philosopher of science does, I think, you know, there are differences in expertise and differences in focus, but the uh, boundary, as I said, is at best a blurry one. So I see philosophy as being continuous with science. So there's really not much of a boundary here to overstep. You know, stepping from science into speculative metaphysics, I think scientists tread that line, that blurry line, a great deal of the time and do it rather expertly, in fact. Um, think about, for instance, uh, Einstein's special relativity paper of 1905. Um, I give that to my students as an exemplar of how to do good philosophy. Right? What do we mean by simultaneity, he asks. <laughs> he gives an operational definition of what simultaneity is and goes on. I mean, it's, it's, uh, it's science, but it's also very, very good philosophy. Um, I see very little difference except in, you know, in emphasis. So if you really want to sort of dig your heels in and say, no, there is a difference here, either multiverse is a perfectly good scientific hypothesis or it's a perfectly good philosophical one. I don't much care and I don't think you should either. So here, just to finish up then, here are the options, I think, um, given all of this, this wonderful uh, examples of the fine-tuning that Luke's been through, can deny the evidence think, no, it's some sort of a mash-up job. I, I kind of think that's implausible. I think the evidence is overwhelming, but some people are inclined to deny the evidence. You could accept the evidence but deny that our universe is improbable, um, get off the boat there and say, no, it's, it's fine-tuned, but that does not mean that it's improbable, um, and in, therefore I don't need to offer any further explanation. Um, I'm sometimes tempted with that option myself. You could accept the improbability claim but not seek further explanation. That's just the way things are, just like the dart, dart had to land somewhere kind of thing, you know. Um, don't need to explain any further. Or you'd accept the improbability claim and seek further explanation. You do think there's something special about carbon-based life that needs explanation. Intelligent fine-tuner behind it all uh, is one way people have gone. Um, I have very little sympathy for that where I dragged this far down the argument, I would be with Luke all the way here. I think the multiverse, uh, either temporally or spatially, there are sort of two different versions. I've got square, scare quotes about around each because <laughs> neither is really space or time because space and time are going to be uh, tied up with the, 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 the universe itself. But you can kind of crudely think of it as 
just lots and lots of goes at it with the same dart, as it were, you know. Just keep trying until you get one with life. Big bang, big crunch, big bang, big crunch, something like that. Uh, or you can think of it as kind of disconnected in a space-like kind of fashion, as I said, neither spatially nor temporally. But there are different ways you could spell out this multiverse, um, and I think they do a, a very good job of explaining um, this fine-tuning. So those are your options. Uh, choose wisely, and if you need some uh, further reading to help you with your choices before you go to the ballot box, um, we don't want another... Uh, <laughs> A, a, a hung, <laughs> hung decision here. Uh, these are a couple of the classic kind of science um, references, Barrow and Tipler um, and Reese, and soon to be added to that fine literature will be the uh, Lewis and Barnes book, and there's just a couple of uh, philosophy references as well, um, none better than the great David Hume, I think, who was writing long before any of this stuff, but was talking about design arguments in general. Thank you very much. Well, thank you very much. And it's absolutely, uh, I don't know, mind-opening to, to think of it from your perspective and to see that the overlap between our science and philosophy. So thank you very much for your, um, both of your presentations. Um, I'd like to invite you to take a seat over here. Maybe I can pass... The microphone yep. to you. Um, we're going to have time for approximately, what's the time now, sorry, about 15 minutes of questions. And so um, please wait for the microphone before you start asking a question. And we've got roving microphone people, I think. So, okay. Um, where will we start? Just maybe just here. Yep. Thank you. Can you hear me okay? Yep. Thank you. Um, when I look up in the dictionary the, uh, the word universe, it comes up uh, in, in pretty well any dictionary. It says that it's, the universe contains everything, all matter and void, everywhere. So with multiverse possibly being infinite, shouldn't, when we say our universe, that, shouldn't that be really classed as a sub-universe? And then we can say that multiverse is infinite and then the universe didn't really begin, nor is it going to end because it's infinite. Yeah, that's just uh, theorists being a bit lazy. We should say something like sub-universe, but it's, uh, we refer to the bit of the universe we can see as the observable universe and then get a bit lazy and lapse into saying that that's just the universe, the universe we're familiar with. But yeah, so, so if, if you're talking about the multiverse, you better be careful about what you mean by the word universe. We usually end, end up meaning something like a small U universe, just a bit that you can see, which has roughly the same laws from one end to the other. Right. And so multiverse is infinite? Is that how it works? Um, it depends on your model. It, it's a theory, right? Yeah. I mean, it, you, you can come up with one. Yeah. It's philosophical. Who knows? <laughs> okay, thanks. I mean, it's a bit like with the notion of atom, right? Once upon a time, an atom was the smallest indivisible unit. So even talking about splitting the atom was crazy talk, right? But what we're doing there is the same thing. We're being a little bit sloppy. What we meant was atom, what they used to think of as atom, and now we're trying to work out are there things smaller than that. And the same kind of things going on here, I think. Hi, just three quick questions. So one, you're assuming that there are no additional constraints. So for example, 
Um, when Maxwell came up with his equations in 1864, he basically showed that uh, the electric um, susceptibility, uh, permeability and magnetic susceptibility constrain the speed of light. So as we perfect our theory of everything, perhaps we'll find that there'll be more constraints that will necessarily cut out a lot of those regions that are arguably still intact at the moment, given our limited understanding. Uh, second, when you were mentioning the Boltzmann's brains, you were basically assuming that a brain would be simpler than a universe, whereas if you look at like M theory, it seems to indicate that a single bubble, which is a simple collapse of the brains, can lead to an entire universe within the multiverse description. So it might be that a universe is actually simpler than the brains that it can contain. And third, I remember back in the 90s reading something about uh, a hypothesis that the constants are not actually constant, that they do change over time as part of um, a reinterpretation of inflation theory. Just wanted your opinions on that. So, uh, in order, <laughs> in reverse order, because I'll try and remember what the first one was. Uh, uh, yeah, if, there's going to be a, if you're going to have a multiversity, you need these constants to change, which is, uh, yeah, again, sloppy language. We need them to be some, actually something else, like, you know, some sort of... We need them embedded in some deeper theory in which they can change. So, yes, we need something like that. Uh, the second one, uh, I disagree. If you have a closer look at the, the sort of the, um, the initial conditions you need for inflation to turn a, an M-theory, whatever, into a big universe... <laughs> Uh, it's more likely that you'll get a smaller one than a bigger one still, on, on very general sort of entropy, in, entropy grounds. It's, it's inflation that's pushing that scenario. So I think the argument still survives, although if you can make big universes for free, then that would be great and an exciting business opportunity. Uh, and uh, the first question, remind me? Uh, constraints, yes. Yeah, so maybe when, at the end of the day, there are no free constants in the... We, you know, this was Einstein's dream. Maybe we can write down an equation in which there are no free constants. That would be great. Uh, but then um, there's two things you can say about that. that either there's some sort of abstract mathematical principles, which by chance, you know, or, or fortune or whatever, uh, are producing, you know, chocolate and all the conditions necessary for that. And that seems to be another fine-tuning case, although not the sort of case where you have a free dial. Uh, but there still might be something in the same vein. If you think there's something to explain in fine-tuning, there would possibly be something to explain there as well. Look, uh, a quick comment. Uh, any system of knowledge at all has to be axiom-based, so there's always going to be a constraint, clearly. Uh, you have to base it on something, and that something is going to be right. one of your constraints. So, yeah, I think, I think you're right when you say that uh, there'll be some other constant somewhere that will have to be built on. Um, my question relates to the 20 or something constants that we do have, which cause the, uh, that are finely tuned, that make the universe the way it is. Uh, my question is, is it, is it possible that the universe is multiply instantiated? And by that I mean, I know you can't change any one of those 20 numbers, but can you make compensating adjustments and change this one a little bit this way and the other one, tweak it back the other way and right. come up with some combination that would work as a viable universe? Or has that been eliminated? So it, it's hard to do because there are so many numbers to change. One of the reasons why I do it in, in 3D is just to show that, you know, there's as many dimensions as I can plot on a flat screen and, and we keep looking for ways, the sort of oasis of life somewhere and it just keeps on not turning up. Um, 
So yeah, people have looked at ways to, to try and turn multiple dials at once, uh, and it, it hasn't seemed to have worked. It's a possibility that there's some sort of oasis of life out there in parameter space, but uh, there's, there's no evidence for it. Could it be that we're in one of those oases ourselves? Is, is that a plausible Well, I model? mean, only if we're wrong about what the universe does around the point where we, we, where we are on that, remember, the block, right? So it, as far as we know, we're not in a, a sort of broad oasis. We're in a, we're in a very tight little uh, constrained part. Is diversity probable or improbable? What, what do you mean by diversity? Yeah, philosopher's answer. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I can't help myself. <laughs> That's why I got him here, perfect. <laughs> diversity of life forms, do you mean, or diversity of particles? or? Well, diversity of everything. Or that includes everything. So, you'll notice that uh, in the simulations I had, I didn't actually get to a life form, right? The... the we, we, what we can't actually do is take another set of equations and predict whether life would form in that universe. It's too complicated. Most of the things, it's not that I can say life would definitely happen here, but what I can say is life over here is very unlikely because they're too simple. So actually there's not diversity in those universes. There's not diversity of elements in the periodic table. There's not diversity of structures in the universe. So most of these fine-tuning cases are built on a complete lack of any kind of structure or interesting ways that things can, can, can hit together. Uh, on the question of whether it's improbable, uh, just sort of returning some of Mark's comments, um, so, so I, I made the point that the question about whether life is improbable is the same sort of question as whether uh, galaxies or... Uh, atoms or those sorts of things are improbable. So if you've got a theory, you've got to predict that sort of stuff somehow or you don't really have a scientific theory. So if it, it's kind of, it, it's not that I have all the answers to how to calculate those probabilities, it's more of a sort of a threat, is that uh, these fine-tuning probabilities are wedded with all the other probabilities in physics. So if you take down the fine-tuning argument, the rest of physics falls with it. So if, I mean, if you want to do that as a philosopher, that's, uh, <laughs> that's you know, probably not uh, ideal. Um, so I think, you know, uh, the, the sorts of uh, ways that we approach theories in which we calculate probabilities to test any theory, I think, at, faced with fine-tuning, come out with, this looks pretty improbable. We do have a very diverse cosmos. Yes. Oh, thank you. The first book I read on the subject was by Martin Rees, called Just Six Numbers, yep. in which he claimed there were six constants which seemed to be independent in the universe. Since then, I've read other books that claimed they were up to, I think, 37 independent constants. And the late Victor Stenger, he combined them into, I think it was about four that actually matter. And he said only unitless numbers count because otherwise you can change, make the number anything you like by selecting your units. Could you give us some indication on how many independent constants there are in, in your understanding, please? 32. Ta-da. Um, <laughs> Reese's book was called Just Six Numbers because those were the important ones for life. There's a, whole, there's a bunch of other ones which don't do very much to your everyday life. You could make... Uh, you change the properties of neutrinos a bit and it, not much happens. Um, so, yeah, 32 is the magic number there of which uh, you can make a good sort of... these kind of fine-tuning cases for maybe 10. 
um, independently and in certain combinations. And, and it's, it's interesting to note, as I, as I sort of said in passing, all you need is one, in a way, to get yeah. the, the argument to work. I mean, people make, like um, the Barrow and Tipler make a big fuss about how many different ways you've got the fine-tuning. And that's, that's good and interesting, but in fact you only need one because if the probability claim is going to work at all, it'll work off one. If you've got a, like, you know, a little, little tiny interval in one dimension, that's fine-tuning. I was giving you two with the dartboard, yeah. Luke was doing three, any of those claims will work. So one, one, one constant fine-tuned is enough to, to get you there. Sorry, Ben. Ben, that gentleman. Ages, yes. Yeah, you've been talking of sort of fine-tuning the constants in the equations, but um, could those equations be different? And where do they come from? Yeah, there's nothing in the equations that says, if you're a theorist, you can write down any equation you like. There's nothing that says this is the one that describes, this is why, you know, unfortunately, we need observers. Uh, we have to actually go and look at the universe... Um, so, yeah, there's, there's all, you, you could run a fine-tuning style of... You'd see something weird about fine-tuning just at the level of, of the laws. So, for example, the, the sort of great divide in 20th century physics was between classical mechanics of Newton, where you know, things are particles and have positions and velocities and bounce around, and quantum mechanics, which is, is weird and not easily explained in a question session. Uh, it... Atoms aren't stable under, under classical mechanics. They, the electron just spirals into the nucleus. You can't get any of that sort of structure you see in DNA. So on that sort of level, you say, okay, if the universe ran by classical laws and classical electromagnetism, you wouldn't have atoms. And you can say things like that and perhaps build up a, a case. What you can't do is, is make a nice, continuous uh, plot of all the possibilities and map out these ones and that ones. So it's problematic, but I think there would still be, you know, if there's something to explain about fine-tuning, there would be something to explain there as well. Uh, over here. Uh, so, Mark, when you talked about the multiverse, you switched into or, or mentioned the possibility of a kind of bang, rebang, temporal multiverse. Temporal-like. Uh, temporal-like multiverse. <laughs> My understanding of what astronomers have been telling me for a while is that the universe is more open and not likely to recollapse. Uh, is that something Luke wants to comment on? Or, do you, or are you saying that you've heard differently? No, no, my, my remark was just that, uh, all that for all that we've said here, all you require is that you've got more than one shot at the dartboard or more than one shot at punching in the code. And that can be a million monkeys doing it simultaneously or it can be kind of one person doing it repeatedly, either will work. Um, there may be well good reasons to not think that this, there's a, you can even make sense of the sequential thing because time is tied up with it as well. Right, exactly. But so, so, so is space. So the spatial analogy doesn't quite work either. But, but the, in some sense there is more than one, um, more than one universe could be spelled out in different ways, was all I was saying, not, not that there's any evidence one way or another. So I, I agree, hypothetically it could be, but I, I thought there was evidence against the temporal rebang, but I, I 
I know less than the astronomers. Oh, our universe will probably not recollapse. Mm. Right. That's so right. the sort of scenario where you just have the Big Bang, Big Crunch, Big Bang, Big Crunch, probably not the way our universe works as far as we know. I really liked Mark's um, summary thing, the four, the four points, A, B, C, D, and the answer to four was either there's a, a mind behind it or there's an infinite number of universes. And that's sort of where I've come to in my thinking. But I keep on thinking more intelligent people out there must have some other ideas that I haven't thought of. Are there any other um, options that could answer that point four? Does that make sense? I'm, I'm not aware of any. I mean, I, I, I didn't hope I didn't suggest that that was, were the only, logically, the only two ones. I mean, just as far as they're the two that get publicity. Um, there may well be another way of explaining the improbability, given that you think that there's something special and needs explaining. Um, uh, different versions, for instance, you, you can divide those up, for instance. There are different versions of what the fine tuner looks like, for instance. Fine tuner could be, you know, pick your favourite deity. Um, uh, you know, so there's lots of sort of sub, sub classification there. And there may, may be other ways. I, I, off the top of my head, I can't think of any, and I don't know of any others in the literature. They're the, they're the two big ones, the, the, uh, you know, the, the intelligent designer versus the, the, the multiverse. So I think if you uh, interpret the first one broadly enough to deny fine-tuning, I think that's the point we had before, that maybe there are just no free parameters. Uh, and apart from that, yeah, there's a lot of... Uh, there's a huge literature on this, of course. So, for example, all the... The arguments that Mark presented about uh, uh, you would have to sort of mind read the the the, inten the intentions of an intelligent designer. There's a huge you know article. You know there are philosophers who are theists. Richard Swinburne, uh, 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 Robin Collins. If you want to read their work, that's very interesting stuff. Saying you know, sure, if 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 you were just sort of making up a deity from scratch or picking one from random, you're in a bit of trouble. But if you think that you have moral knowledge. And if you think that God is the good, then you have some sort of evidence about what a good designer would want. In the same way as if you learn a mathematical fact, you know what an infinitely you know, talented mathematician would know. And then you get in all sorts of those kind of arguments. The question, to, if you want to balance these sorts of things up, is um, do you think that those uh, uncertainties on that side of the argument are enough to outweigh the improbabilities on the other side of the argument? If you're you know, someone like Richard Swinburne or Robin Collins, they're going to say, you know, fine, take that, take that uncertainty into account. It's not going to overbalance the incredible improbabilities on the other side of the argument. So there's, there's you know, there's a, there's, there's a lot more to be said. We've actually just um, ran out of time for more questions, although I believe that the speakers may be at the front for a little bit afterwards. So um, apologies to those who didn't get a chance to um, ask their questions in front of the audience. Um, before you go, I'd just like to um, thank the speakers again and we have a small presentation of um, the book that uh, actually <laughs> Luke mentioned in his talk. Um, so you've got your own copy now. Yeah. You don't have to uh, borrow you get it. Copy so back. Thank you very much. Thank you very much for um, coming and speaking to us today and, and being so generous with your time and answering the questions. And please join with me to thank the speakers again. Thank you.